Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I am Michael Hidalgo, and this is already the third episode. And let me begin by saying just a big thank you. Uh, Many of you have taken the time to join with us on the first two episodes. I'm already receiving emails with questions and even encouragements. So thank you. Uh, It's really meant a lot. So if you want to email me, let me just remind you, you can do that at michael at michael-hidalgo.com. And uh, we would love getting your questions and your encouragement, so keep sending those on. Uh, Today's episode, we are going to talk about the power of proximity. This is the title of a new book that was written by Michelle Ferrigno Warren, and Michelle is the Advocacy and Strategic Engagement Director for the Christian Community Development Association. She is an Immigration, Education, and Human Service Policy Specialist and an adjunct faculty member at Denver Seminary. She has over 20 years experience working in Christian community development. She's a part of the National Evangelical Immigration Table and consults with the National Immigration Forum. And Michelle is here with us today. Michelle, welcome and thank you for being on the Changing Faith podcast. It's great to be with you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a huge introduction. It felt very stately to say that. (laughs) But you're also someone who's a friend, someone that works alongside Denver Community Church, and so we're really grateful for that. And uh, your book, we were just talking about it before we hit record, um, really, really enjoyed reading it. I mean, my goodness, it's a, I was saying it's very vulnerable and also very challenging and informative, and so it is pretty autobiographical. Um, And I'd love for you just to tell us a bit about your story and the book and what led you to write it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think I'll probably start with what led me to write it. So as um, in my in my job, I live in Denver and have an opportunity to interact with a lot of churches and church leaders and institutions. But in my role at CCDA, I'm around the country. And when I'm talking about whether it's immigration or education equity or race or systemic injustice, all the different things that I have the opportunity to engage around, it seemed to me over the last probably four or five years that a lot of white millennials would come find me afterwards and really engage in conversation asking me, could we meet? Could we have coffee? I want to find out how can I get a job like yours? This is what I feel like I was driven to do. And literally I tried to do that. And at one point it was just getting ridiculous um, on two levels. One, I just didn't have that much time. But two, there's just a hunger out there. I think that mm. this young generation, and when I say young, I mean a little younger than me, um, but I would say the 35 and under crowd is very aware of the injustices of the world. I, it's not just um, a cursory knowledge either. They've experienced it, whether it's youth group events that went and fed the homeless or missions trips, etc. They're out in the world and they understood the pain and and really wanted to know what could they do to pivot their next move so that they could engage it with substance. And so I just really felt like, you know, after a lot of those meetings, it's important what you study. There's no doubt. It's important what you study and and what you pursue. But I felt like the most powerful thing for me was being in proximity to the poor. It changed everything. And the longer I stayed proximate, you know, the more I changed and really enabled me to be the advocate, uh, the social justice advocate, you know, the neighbor, the good neighbor that I, you know, long to be in real sincere ways. And so I just, that seemed to be the message I was saying over coffee all the time and thought, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just time to let that message get out because I really think it's hungry. So that people are hungry for it. So that was really my motivation is to equip the church, uh, specifically white millennials um, that I come in contact with. It's not that other people couldn't enjoy that book, but that was who was coming to see me so much. Yeah. I really wanted to get that message out there. And you talked about 
they're they're aware of mm-hmm. these issues, the systemic injustice, issues of race, issues of immigration that really now seem to be at everyone's doorstep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a conversation that so many of us are having. And this is actually where you begin uh, the book. And so I'm going to want to read some portions of the book for our listeners and then just hear your thoughts on it, um, explaining and helping us understand where you are. Because with regard to awareness, you write, awareness is not enough to fix a broken system. It is not enough to affect the status quo. It is not enough to keep us or anyone else engaged for the long haul. It does not make enough of an impact on our collective lens And more tragically, it does not transform our lens in a way that will bring about true liberation for those trapped in broken systems. Proximity does all of these things. Proximity gets as close to the pain of an issue that it radically changes our perspective and demands a deeper response. The longer we stay proximate, the more our perspective is shaped and the more we respond to what needs to be changed. Proximity is transformational. It unearths the rules of our social construct and levels the playing field enough that we are able to journey with those impacted by injustice in deeply shared ways. So help us understand that difference for you between knowing about something and really having the lived experience of it that you call proximity. Yeah, I don't want to criticize awareness because I think awareness in a vacuum is a good thing. I just don't think it's enough to actually do anything. So I at least want to put that caveat on because I think especially even in the church, we've really tried to bring the pain of the world in because we know we as Christians need to respond to it. My friend Alexia Salvatieria, she says she doesn't think that the evangelical church has a compassion problem, that they have a vision problem. Hmm. And I don't I don't know if I agree with it totally. I think she's a little more generous and gracious than I am. So I'm like, no, they really do have, you know, <laughs> they have both. <laughs> but um but I but I think that she's you know, she's spot on with that in some ways because if you can't see things, you can't respond. And when the more distance there is to the pain, you know, right now we've got Puerto Rico. If you're not Puerto Mm -hmm. Rican, if you've never been there, you know, you can feel like, oh, yeah, that's too bad. That's too bad they haven't been able to flush their toilets for a month. You know, but if you have even had a little bit of a missions trip there, you're like, oh, my goodness. Or if you have relationships there and you add to I've got family there or I am Puerto Rican. I mean, the closer you are to something, the more informed you are and the deeper your response. And so if we've spent all of these years as a church bringing in compassion videos and, you know, I don't know, packing shoeboxes or or whatever it is that the evangelical church has been doing um, in concert with each other, I don't want to criticize any of that. But that's really not getting to the underlying thing. It's our hope is that it would stroke God's heart for justice in parishioners so that they'll want to engage more. And so that's really what relationships do. And it's, it's good to start, but we always need to be leaning in. And that's really my story. I don't, I don't know if I really had a huge end game in this. Um, you know, I, I've told people regularly, I, I definitely would consider myself and, and I think everybody else in my world would say, you know, I'm a social justice advocate, you know, passionate about immigration. It doesn't matter what title you read, that's who I am. And I didn't roll out of bed one day to be that person, but I did roll out of bed every single day in my community that's impacted by poverty, oppression, injustice, deciding to be a good neighbor. And when you're a good neighbor as a Christian, you're going to love them like you love yourself. You're going to love your, their kids like you love your own kids. And you're going to do anything you can to make sure that everybody is moving forward together. It's not okay to live in the poor and say, oh, Michelle and David and their three kids are doing great and the whole community is not. 
You know, the whole idea right. of justice and community and loving a neighbor is everybody moves forward in wholeness together. And so, I mean, there's a lot of big concepts with just what you read. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I was yeah. like, wow, who wrote that? That's a lot to, to swallow. <laughs> so I don't want to, you know, under, you know, under, um, I don't want to sell short that bigger conversation, but relationships are powerful. Yeah. And proximity, you know, is, is kind of a, a fancy P word to describe, you know, sincere relationships. And it's interesting because, as I told you right before we started, the podcast, and I've said this to the listeners as well, this is about their next step. And so in some ways what I hear you saying is awareness is a great first step. But then when you encounter these millennials, they become aware and they're already saying, what's next? Yeah. And I think that's what you're doing is you're inviting us toward, hey, this is a possible next step for us. Mm-hmm. And, and so for you, proximity looked like and looks like currently living in a a poor neighborhood and doing work with and among the poor. But you've also talked about how proximity isn't necessarily where you live. Help us understand that a little bit more. Yeah, I think, I mean, there is definitely location isn't very important. I don't want to, you know, say that that's not. But I think, you know, where you choose to live and how you choose to live is are two important questions. Um, I, there's a lot, especially in Denver, with all the gentrification, people could say, well, I'm proximate to the poor. I see, you know, the average homeless man, or I maybe, you know, talk to people kind of on my way to work. That's not really what we're talking about. That's still on that awareness level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that proximity is more about a posture of leaning in. And so, yeah, I'm in, I was, my husband and I went, not originally me, but but both of us landed in full-time Christian community development ministry. And so our proximity, it's not just work, it's worship and our living, you know, is incredibly holistic and, and probably not where everyone is going to land. But I think that just understanding that we're at a racial and socioeconomic divide in our country and the church is absolutely no different, yet we are supposed to be one body. Mm. So how are we really going to live in the fullness of that body? Not as a project, not like, oh, well, I know a poor person, so I guess I can and check that box or I've taken a <laughs> selfie with an African-American so race doesn't apply to me. I mean, those are the way we think because they're so big and we are so, I mean, I think we are pained by the world. We just don't know how to engage it. Mm. And we think it's going to be a short work. We hope it's going right. to be a short work and we hope we can see efforts to our, our results because it takes, eff- it takes, you know, actual intention to build bridges against, you know, race and class. Um, and culture and language. And so, and so, yeah, I think that it's not just for full-time Christian ministry, but I do think it is, it is a posture of really wanting to lean into a relationship, knowing that you're intentionally going to get things out of it, um, and give things. We have such a paternalistic mindset with the poor. We're better than people because we have, you know, wealth or somehow we're smarter and we just don't even have relationships with the poor to even understand really what's been going on, um, not just in their individual lives, but society and structurally. And this is one of the things that you address in the book is we're Americans. Mm -hmm. And so we get her done, right? Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. the, uh, we're going to fix it. And so I mean, I think of one of my mentors who would always say, get solution side as fast as possible. That's um, great advice. <laughs> in some ways, but, but then... Not so much with injustice and it, poverty, but yeah, it's right. great. <laughs> and you, what I've learned, especially for me, um, is oftentimes I start working on a problem only to discover the problem I'm working on isn't actually the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that you write that I love is you write, one of the hardest things to do when we begin to learn about pain and injustice especially when someone we know is directly impacted, is to stay on the sidelines. 
The desire to jump in and fix is part of our American social construct. The United States is a superpower of the world, so we must also assume the role of superhero and rescue everyone with our knowledge, insight, wealth, and experience. I have seen it in people who come to my community to help serve for a short time. The last thing I want to do is to criticize those of our body who come to share a moment in their week, summer, or season and make them think their presence is not welcomed. But I do want to clarify that people are not problems in need of fixing. People, including us, have problems that call for shared journeying. And it's that phrase, shared journeying, that I love because this is the part in the book that I read where you share about your own pain, Mm -hmm. times when you were less than stellar. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Um, And so help us understand that. Like with this proximity, with this moving toward, with this being with as, as you talk about it, what, how do we even begin to approach those things if it's not in a place of fixing and being someone who can get it fixed or get it done? What does that look like for us? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, journeys are, are long and they're unpredictable and they're disorienting. Mm. And that's why they're so helpful. You know, if you look at that proximity of those relationships as disorienting or knowing that's going to, you're actually able to learn more. And so that's, some of the, the purpose of even what I'm sharing within relationships is you can't, I mean, you can't predict how a journey is going to go. Some people are too afraid to take it because they're so used to control and, you know, predictability and all of these different things. They don't like to get their hands messy or dirty. And so they're not even going to embark on that journey because somehow in our Western mindset, we have, we have said, if you can't find a solution, then it's not worth your effort. And so we stay away from things that don't have tangible solutions. You know, sometimes we choose degrees that we know we can get A's in, you know, or, you know, we, we choose to, to, to make sure that we're protecting ourselves from a lack of success. You know, and I talk a lot about that, about fear and, and really pushing back fear, but I think that's really the root of it, you know, is why wouldn't we want to cross over to the half-dead, beaten-up person on the side of the road you know, as the Levite and the priest, when we are supposed to have words of life, we're supposed to, you know, that everything right. that we've been trained to do is to drop in the moment and go, but we've padded and created rules and structures that can exempt us out. And we've justified why mm. we wouldn't have to get our hands dirty. And I think that these are things that I just really want to challenge the church to rethink what success looks like. You know, and, and a journey, like I said, unpredictable, you know, unchartable, and it is a big bummer that doing justice does not have a task list because mm. we just check it off. We check it off and it seems so okay. So, so for those of us who might want to embark on that, you know, staying committed for the long haul can be a scary thing because, you know, people ask you and you're just driven to say, well, I'm succeeding, I'm succeeding. And so then you look to people that you're working alongside and you're like, man, I can't believe you went back to crack. I can't believe you went back to your abuser. You know, all of yeah. these, like, and it can sometimes get really twisted in what their life is versus our success. And, and that's messed up. That's right. completely messed up. Right. And so I try to, you know, just talk about that. I don't even know if I want to talk about that totally on the podcast. But I think those are just some real warning signs of who do we really care about. And I didn't share this in the book, but I'll, I'll share you. I was a, a worship um, leader for a number of years. And, and you know, most of my team had ankle bracelets and we're coming from halfway houses every Sunday. And so you just never knew. It was a great motley crew of tremendously talented people. And I remember one time, and this is going to out me, it's going to just show my humanity and everybody will feel bad. 
um, feel feel bad that I'm bad and they're not. But so I forget. I think one of my my drummers, um, you know, called called me and I found out that he had relapsed and I thought, man, now I need a drummer. And I was like, what the heck is wrong? My mm-hmm. friend who I've shared this journey with is relapsed, and my very first reaction. Now my second reaction was, oh man, I'm so sorry. But my first reaction was selfish. Mm. Was now I need to fill that drummer spot and. And I think when you are in a journey where you can't use your normal skill set, you get to really see who you really are. Mm. And that's where that shared journey really comes. Um, you know, there's uh, Lila Watson. I don't know if you know her. She's a Australian activist and artist who um, was an, a part of an Aborigine tribe and, you know, the indigenous people. And there's always, you know there's just elements of activism around that. And, and she had a quote that's really powerful. And I think it really kind of messes with white people, especially, you know, people who do, you know, what, what I do or, or want to do. And, and, and it, it, it goes something like this. If you've come here to help me, you are wasting your time. Wow. But if you've come here because your liberation is bound up in mine, then let's work together. And that's what a journey does. It strips you of your own illusions of wholeness. You see yourself in such awful ways. Um, and and you're, you're, you're kept to your breaking point. I talk about a story where I got so angry that I yelled out and kicked the wall. My kids read that. And if you had heard them in their response to it, they actually have almost never heard me yell. Because that's just not a part of who I am. I'm not a big screamer, yeller. Now I get angry, you know, but there's just different ways that I manifest. And so to see myself in such an angry spot, that was good for me. It was good for me because yeah. I'm I need to see my ugly I need to cry out to God, not as, Hey, I'm the savior, you should help me because I'm helping all these people, but man, I am desperately broken. God, I don't know if I'm gonna make it. Can you heal me? Can you help me? And so this this winning and losing isn't, oh, we I mean, it just gets all messed up. And really that shared journey of liberation with each other that I can't rest unless we're okay together. Yeah. It's so powerful. And it's good imagery um, and powerful imagery. And I, and I think that's really what I'm talking about there. And it's interesting because in that chapter that I, that I read from, you reflect on Jesus. And as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't know that Jesus really fixed a whole lot no in way. his culture. When he was dead and resurrected, there was nothing really tangible that he did, but there was a sense of, I will suffer with you. That's right. I will suffer on your behalf. Your pain is my pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet we write leadership books about him and he doesn't get anything done. (laughs) Well, yeah, and he doesn't fix, you know, he fixed obviously ultimate redemption. There's there's a couple of things. You know, when when you said that, I I thought of that, you know, in this world, we will have tribulations, Mm -hmm. you know, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. And that really speaks to the long game. And that's pushing against that Western American mindset of a short game, which is if I don't have tangible measurements, then I must not be succeeding and I must try something different instead of, no, be of cheer. I've overcome the world. I mean, he hadn't even died yet. All right. He already knew the plan of redemption was going to happen, you know, and that that things were going to be set, you know, set straight. And so, you know, I think we just really need to change the way we view our life and our calling and the way we measure our next lean in versus our next success from success to success. Right. You know, another thing is, is that Jesus, 
Jesus, I, I talk about how he became proximate to us and his proximity had purpose. And it was for that shared journey. It wasn't to make himself look out like a rock star and, you know, be with all the great leaders. And I often will say, you know, he didn't come to massage the egos of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, you know, it, it, that's not the game he was playing, right? He came for sick people. Mm-hmm. And he made no apology for that. And if people didn't want to get on his bandwagon, he had some things to say. You know, but Jesus actually didn't even have to come to earth to fix the problem. He could have stayed so far and distant from it. And that's what we have to remember as well, that whether Jesus was a measurable success in his human life, you know, for what he did. I mean, he did help blind people see. So, I mean, he did, okay, do, there's that. He did a bunch <laughs> of stuff. So I don't want to, but he didn't overthrow the Roman Empire. Right. You know, he didn't, you know, he obviously overturned some tables, but, you know. Yeah, the things that were on the agenda for people in his culture, those are the things that were left unfixed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, he didn't do it from a distance. So he didn't stay in heaven and say, you know, like, let's master chess, you know, this. He literally became proximate and he didn't, he didn't do it to court power and, and privilege. He came humbly and he emptied himself of all of those privileges and rights and demands. And that's what happens is we who are privileged, who choose to, you know, to move beyond our awareness to an action, we've got to strip ourselves of that too, because it's like, hey, wait a second, I am giving my life this. How is it possible that I that you're you're blowing it for me? You know, those are some really, really narcissistic, selfish things. But that that's real. Yeah. That's real. And we've got to continue to lean in so that we I mean, it, we grow past that. We mm-hmm. have to grow past ourselves. It takes a lot of years to do that. It does. And I, I only say that because I've not yet done that. Well, I'm still doing it, <laughs> yeah. too. I'm still we doing all are. it. Yeah, no, we all are. But, but yeah, I think, you know, yeah. yeah. We'll, just, we'll just leave that with that. You, you've used the word several times already sitting here, uh, the word justice. Mm-hmm. And you make a really important uh, differentiation, so to speak, in the book you talk about how justice was about the restoration of people, not solely about punishment of wrongdoing. And then you say, God's justice recognizes that the poor need special attention. The poor need to be restored to their productive place so that the community can move forward together. If they are unable to move forward, we as agents of God's justice are not doing what we are called to do. And you're not dismissing the role of what we would call justice as punishment or punitive justice, but there, what you talk about, and you talk about the word mishpat in Hebrew, is this kind of awakening that righteousness, which we often think of as just being well-behaved, doing the right things, being holy, being moral, that righteousness and justice are actually deeply interwoven, and there's a whole restorative element to that that you begin learning in this work. Help us understand a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I want to say, I want to remind everybody that justice is not some liberal political word. It is a biblical word. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's even a trigger word for the evangelical church, which really bugs me. I'm like, this is a biblical word. We need to use it. We need to lean into what it really means. And you're right. I talk about um, mishpat and the way that I feel like Ron Sider does a great job and, and some commentaries that explain that mishpat is, is like a pendulum that swings between um, benefits or opportunities and consequences. And in my growing up and often in what we've historically heard, that justice is all about consequences. And we forget or we just never knew that it's about opportunity. And when we want to work towards the restoration of ourselves or the restoration of our communities or individuals, we need to see what is it going to take in order for that to move forward. 
Is it that people need haven't had opportunities and we need to help create opportunities? Are there, you know, consequences because people just aren't, you know, wanting to make good decisions? And so there's this balance. And I think, you know, I'm a parent. I don't, I'm not saying all your listeners are, but I mean, you, when you train children or even I was a teacher, we just know that not everything can be about punishment and not everything can be about rewards. It's this gentle individual balance of, of what we need. And so we can't spend all of our time just looking at complete individual restoration. We don't, we don't have a one one ratio right. you know so social justice really looks at societal implications what are things that are in society that people are getting trapped or caught you know we'll see a lot of educational programs come out of that you know parents that maybe had kids and didn't graduate from from high school and don't have the skill set to help their kids or there's not um, economic stability to be able to move them into the digital age with computers like how can we create opportunities that so that the cracks in the people that are already were vulnerable don't far the, fall farther behind and so when I talk about God's special attention for the poor I mean I already he talked about it even when Jesus came. He wasn't really worried about the Pharisees and he challenged them. You know, I'm not coming for you. I'm coming for the sick because the sick are the ones who need a doctor. Kind of get with the program and help me. You are the stewards of the vision of Jubilee. Yeah. Jubilee, this ultimate restoration where we recognize that things happen. People lost their land. You know, I'm referring to the Old Testament and just everyone was allotted certain pieces. You know, you're just born into those opportunities if you were, you know, an Israelite. But over time, we forgot God's principle of a reset because people just didn't want to obey it. And here the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that time were supposed to be operating from this heart of justice and righteousness, which actually in the New Testament is the exact same word. Mm -hmm. And righteousness isn't just about individual standing. It's about a writing. It's about a restoration. It's about a placement of of. of restoration, you know, between, you know, you and God and your community and God. So, so it's interchangeable when we talk about being hungry and thirsty for righteousness, we're hungry and thirsty for justice. It's that restoration. And so, so that's really what I talk about quite a bit in the book, because when you look at poverty and you look at injustice, it's not just societal. The longer you stay present, you will get more frustrated. I'm not that unique. The longer you stay frustrated, you begin to realize that no one person or no, you know, even one generation got themselves into this place. What is happening? What is going on? And it's even bigger than the United States. And, you oh, know, yeah. and you, you kind of back up to when did people start thinking they were better than each other? And some were more deserving of opportunities. And so I, I guess I'll just end with this. You know, it's, it's almost like everybody's going to die. But people who need special attention are the cancer patients at stage five. And I could walk around healthy as a horse and say, but, but are you kidding? You know, where's the fairness in that? Well, you know what? You're fine. You've yes. got what you need. So we're going to give special attention to the cancer patient. That's, you know, I, I was with Shane Claiborne last week and, you know, he was talking about how, you know, during the Beatitudes, Jesus was like, blessed are the poor. He didn't say blessed are the rich. It's not like because the rich aren't. It's just like we are so hung up on fairness. And we hear that with all lives matter and black lives matter. So it's like, wait, black lives matter. Well, I thought everybody's, well, of course everybody's lives matter, but your life is not in the balance right now. Yes. You're not being gunned down in the street. You're not disproportionately impacted by our incarceration system. You you know, we need to focus on people who need, um, you know, more support. We need to focus on the vulnerable because that's what Jesus did and that's the heart of God. I mean, you cannot read the Old Testament and the prophets and, and miss that. And if you do, no. read it again. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, John Dominic Crossan has the, I love this quote. He says, God never says, I reject your justice because of your lack of worship. 
but he does say, I reject your worship, sh- worship because, because of, of your, your lack, lack of, of justice. justice. What's interesting, when we talk about justice as only punitive, I, I've never met somebody who believes that they deserve the punishment or punitive justice of God. But when we see justice, both reward and punishment, as moving the whole narrative down the field toward ultimate restoration, which is the story in the biblical narrative, is moving toward restoration, everyone sitting under his or her own vine and fig tree, Mm -hmm. that really begins to reframe. And I think that's one of the more helpful helpful parts of of the, um, the book, is reframing that for people. That this is the foundation of God's throne, mm-hmm. as the as the um, right the psalmist says. That that righteousness and justice are the same word in the Greek. All of these things are so helpful, and it begins to ask us: not am I in danger of God's punishment, but how am I joining with God right. to move toward restoration? And you've you touched on it a little bit, but the the book in the book you talked about two things that seem to be right now front and center in our culture in a way that they've never been, at least in my lifetime. Um, and those two things are issues of race and conversations about immigration. And in so many ways, those two things are tied together. They've been more pronounced than ever, given the political realities mm-hmm. that the election season, the results of the election, our current presidential administration, um, and so when you speak about these two issues, you, you approach them with a lot of compassion. Um, you don't come in with, you know, beating people up. How dare you? How are you living this way? But one of the things I thought was helpful as I read it is when you spoke about race, you spoke specifically about ignorance. Um, and again, not in a condescending way, but just I, my experience is, you said this about yourself, I, I'm ignorant. And we're all uh, in our white skin and our white bodies ignorant. And you wrote this. You said, I want to tell my white friends that it's okay to be ignorant when you start, the, when you start to journey in non-homogenous circles. There is room to learn. It's okay to make mistakes. There is forgiveness, even for paternalistic racists. I know this because if there was ever someone who was ignorant, I was at the front of the line. I was really, really uninformed. I'd like to think the days of ignorance surrounding racism in our churches are over, but through relationships and experience, I can only say with certainty that we have a lot to learn about our history. So help us understand the, the bit about just the ignorance side of things, because oftentimes when the subject of race comes up, we imagine it's somewhere else and it's not within us. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we never want to be that person, right? <laughs> because it's painful and you have to do a lot of self-evaluation. This even backs up to the last question and conversation we had. We seem to, to read what we already believe, and we hang around with people who look like us. Some of it's safety, sometimes it's just laziness. And I think that relationally, you know, it's the same way. There's, I, there's a study that was done. It's an American Values Survey. That was done, I think it was in 2013, and, um, and it was the Public Religion Research Institute's American Value Survey, and it found that the social networks of white Americans are 91% white. Wow. Now, social networks isn't school necessarily. It's not, you know, like, I go to a college that has this much diversity. I don't care. That's not what a social network is. You know, or I go to, um, I work, you know, the job that I have, I have, that's not a social network. 
A social network is actually your cluster of friends. It is the people who are going to be bringing you meals, you know, when you're sick or that you're going to be celebrating birthdays with. I mean, social networks are deep social experiences. And 91% of white people have white social networks or predominantly white social networks. And then the next part says that 75% of those whites have entirely white social networks. So a church can be considered a social network. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a smattering of people of color is still considered a white social network. Oh, for sure. Right. So, but 75% of white Americans have exclusively, that means the kids, their soccer kids, you know, clubs are all white. Their kids' school bodies. I mean, so, so we don't, that's where our ignorance is. We're not even in relationship with people. And I think social media can, can be, you know, helpful. I think it can be harmful. I mean, there's just a lot to say about it, but. But we have, we're making opinions about Colin Kaepernick and, you know, NFL players that kneel down from outside of relationship. Yes. If we were in deep social networks, you know, with people and we're having these conversations and sharing these, these things that are happening in the world. But I think that that's really the challenge is that we weigh in on race and we think we know stuff but we're doing it outside of relationship. So when I was growing up, I lived actually next door to an African-American family. And, um, and I, I had friends of color, you know, through my elementary school and through high school. Not many in college, um, but I would, I would not have said that I was ignorant because I was, you know, in some type of cursory relationship. But I was young and, you know, we didn't really know to even talk about those kinds of things. And when I, I, I talk a little bit about this in the book just when I all of a sudden even found out there was a civil rights movement and I I like to think that that part is over you know I was a part of you know the Christian school movement which has a lot of good things but one of the negative things in my mind is that they chose to tell us what they wanted to tell us and they left out you know big pieces and this of our history and it was civil rights was one of them I had not really ever heard the name Martin Luther King Jr. And that was like the sum total of everything I knew, you know, about the civil rights movement. Which is unfortunate because Christian school doesn't talk about a movement that had its roots in the church. Well, no, of course. I mean, there's there's so many problems with that. And I, I'd like to think that today, I mean, that kind of brings us to where we are today. I'd like to pretend that the days of the church being ignorant and unengaged being over, you know, and that is what what really struck, it shocked me. It wasn't even just the roots of the church. It was more like people are treating people of color in such tragic, fatal ways. Like, how could we have stayed silent on this? I mean, I understand... I understand that there is a culture specifically with white um, evangelical churches to stay out of politics. You know, there was that attempt around the moral majority. I know our generation is like, well, we don't want to do that, so we'll kind of stay away. And, I, you know, and there's sort of a contentment um, to stay away from it and almost a justification. But, you know, you look at the civil rights movement, like, how could you have done that? How could you not have picked a side? And, and that was just so shocking and upsetting. And you think, oh, here we are in 2017. You know, I look back at that. There's no way we would miss something like that. And that's, you know, the immigration conversation that we're, you know, beginning to embark on right now and that you referenced already is that this is the racial issue of our moment. I mean, there's several, mm-hmm. but this is it. And if the church isn't weighing in on it, then we will look back at you in history in 20 years and say, where were you? How did you let people say such awful things about vulnerable people? And if immigrants were, you know, this villainous subcategory in our Christian faith that we're constantly supposed to be keeping out, I might 
like try to justify people's, you know, inaction or um, complicit behavior or even the overt, I'm still going to vote for the guy who can't stand immigrants, you know, <laughs> vote last fall. But but it isn't. You go back. We got to keep reading. We got to read our Bible again. We got to read it with a more informed lens as well. It is so overt. There's two things that are the ways the Old Testament laws spoke of how you're supposed to speak to, you know, that quartet of the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the poor, the immigrant. Yep. Every time I hear a pastor talk about widows and orphans, I want them to say immigrant too because you're we're missing, you know, that quartet. So all through, you know, the Old Testament, you see it both in the laws, making sure that that immigrants, I'm going to use just kind of a, a, a language of today, and it's offensive, but I, that, they, that we were letting the Old Testament law allowed immigrants to take advantage of people. They mm-hmm. didn't sow, they didn't, you know, pay for the seed, but the law said, you know what, don't harvest to the edge, let the immigrants do that. Yes. And so, so that's, and that's not just once or twice. I mean, it's all through there. Then you see great warnings in the prophets for how you don't treat immigrants with respect. Woe to you who overlook the needs of the vulnerable, including the, the immigrant. And then, of course, through the New Testament, biblical hospitality. I mean, the word hospitality literally means in the Greek, philo, which is love, xenia, which is strangers, the love of strangers. It actually has nothing to do with Thanksgiving dinner, has mm. nothing to do with hanging out with your friends, pretty much doesn't even have to do with small group with your friends. It <laughs> literally has to do with welcoming strangers. You should be uncomfortable but compelled to do it because you practice biblical hospitality. And that is the complete, you know, church age. And so, so there's, there's this overarching narrative from Genesis through Revelations that continuously affirms actual immigrants. But then there's this also imagery that we see that Abraham, I mean, he could have just stayed. I mean, think of the whole Hebrews 11, all of the patriarchs of the faith. They could have just stayed where they were, but they were called out. They were going to live as sojourners. They were going to be this example of what happens when you don't root yourself in land and you don't root yourself in, you know, a certain type of identity, but that you root yourself in a follower of God. And that was the Hebrew people, whether they had to wander in the wilderness. For, I mean, God obviously gave them land, and eventually, you know, there's some promises for that. For you know, um, but but liter- but um, this figurative idea that to follow Christ means you're a sojourner, and it carries us all the way into, you know, even the Gospels and Peter, where you're not supposed to have your citizenship here. It's supposed to be in heaven. That the call of a Christian is not to be so rooted in the world that we miss the idea that we're longing and in search of a better country. And it's not our physical United States country. It is this kingdom that God, that we cannot see, that yeah. we cannot measure. And so, and so that is really, you know, first of all, that's not something that we hear. And we need to hear it. So there's two narratives around immigration that we should be, as Christians, at the forefront of the immigration conversation and the treatment of immigrants. And then, and there are, there's lots of evangelicals that are. I mean, the organization I work for, Christian Community Development Association, World Relief. I mean, there's a lot of different people that are, are fighting this good fight. But our biggest struggle with our, our groups is all of the people who hold, like elders, you know, people in pews, pastors who have big, powerful churches, they're afraid to actually say what God says about immigrants because it's not politically salient in both politics, you know, for conservatives, for sure. And it's not politically salient to keep your job, you know, as a pastor. Right. So, so I, I would just say that, you know, you look back at the civil rights movement, there was just a lot of cost. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., he, he, he expended everything and, and right. it wasn't just him. 
and with the people around him and people died you know, to fight for people. And you go back to, you know, World War II and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Corey Ten Boom, and everybody thinks they're going to be that person in that season. And the challenge is today is we, we are at a season again. You know, like we're not waiting for a new civil rights issue. We, we have it. And who are the Dietrich Bonhoeffers and who are the Corey Ten Booms and who are the Martin Luther King Juniors and all of those different people that, and it's not just one champion or two. I mean, it's a collection, a harvest of champions. Mm-hmm. You know, who are the people that when we look back in history and say, oh, good, you know, the church was there. We just should be in full force and we're not. And that's embarrassing, frankly. Yeah. And it's interesting how we were talking about ignorance with regard to race, almost at an individual level, but there is a collective, <laughs> and I would argue willful ignorance that most people fail to uh, to recognize that when the civil rights movement was happening, when Dr. King was was preaching, when he was speaking out, that you had the majority of white churches either being completely silent regarding this conversation on Sunday mornings or actually preaching against Absolutely. Dr. King and the civil rights movement. And so you fast forward to today, and quite honestly, Dr. King is a really safe person to quote on, on a few things because he was pretty outspoken against the Vietnam War, which people don't talk about, mm-hmm. very critical of government. But it's also interesting that if we were less ignorant about the church's history, what we would realize is the people that we now call saints mm-hmm. have been employed for, the, for, the, for our own good. And so Mark Kurlansky... Uh, who's a historian, talks about how we don't know what to do with rebels, but saints have a thousand uses. Mm. And so we take these people who were rebels and we make them into these saintly characters. And we forget Martin Luther King disrupted. Oh, absolutely. uh, And all of those who were part of the civil rights movement, they disrupted Mm -hmm. culture. They disrupted things at the highest levels of government. And that's incredibly important for us in our day and age now of... Will we be the ones, like you're saying, are we going to be silent? Are we going to preach against immigration as some evangelical pastors are actually doing? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. for me, when I hear this, I think we are no longer, we we should not call ourselves people of the book (laughs) because if scripture is clear on anything, it's God's heart for those in vulnerable places. And one of the things that has broken my heart is we are more in, informed by partisan policies than than we seem to be by the heart of God, and I don't I don't think we read the prophets. I think there's 55 books of the Bible for most people. Yeah. Um, and again, so next step, maybe you've never read the prophets. Yeah, read them. You're missing a lot. Oh, it's unreal. You know what's interesting though, Michael. You got me preaching Jesus, a little bit there. No by problem. The way. I, I'm starting to kind of feel it too, <laughs> and I'm thinking now we get we got to shut this down. It's almost over. Um, Jesus himself was a rabble rouser. Yeah. He died a criminal's death because they hated him for disrupting the status quo. Yeah, he didn't get killed because he was healing people. No. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they kind of criticized what day, you know, but the whole point is, I mean, you should read up in Luke 20, 21, 20, as you get closer and closer to his death. I mean, he's really leaning in. He's leaning in and in, in good ways, but, but I would say almost the phrase that comes to mind is like pushing their buttons. Um, He's just calling out truth. We mm-hmm. have lost the prophetic nature in our pulpits, and we have forgotten that the church should be about shaping culture, not reacting to it. Yes. If you're always in a posture of reaction, then fear will triumph. If you're always looking at shaping it, then fear becomes irrelevant. Yes. 
be the conscience of the state. That's right. Be the con- that's King right. Said. Dr. King. That's right. Or, yeah. or you end up, do you remember the rest of the part of the quote? If you no. don't, if you don't, so the church is, you know, the, is the moral compass of, of the state. And if, if we don't use that moral voice, then we will become an irrelevant social club. That, that's prophetic. That's truth. Oh yeah. Absolutely. That is the truth. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. also said that he pretty much had more tolerance for people of ill will than people who knew what was going on and did nothing. Yeah. We'll and, you long know, remember the yep. not the words of our enemies, yep. but the silence of our friends. The silence of the yeah. good people. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's just like it's just like you have so much you have more patience for people who hate you than people who say, Oh, I'm with you behind closed doors, but don't have the willingness and the courage to be out with you in public, you know, and, and that's really Jesus. We, we see this all through the New Testament as well. I mean, that's, that's the, either you're for God or you're against him. For those of you who are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. Yeah. And I mean, these are some really, this is real stuff. And I'm basically, we can't be playing around. Not only are yeah. people dying, but I, I just don't want to play and I guess probably for the last 25 years I haven't been playing, and I think it's been the most amazing life. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry for myself. It's been a great <laughs> life. Good. And I want to invite people and challenge people, and that's really what it is. Come yeah. join me. This and, is awesome. And as you do that, I help us understand, what are, how, what are ways that you talk about this? Because I've been encouraged um, in seeing, as you mentioned, there are so many people engaging this, and... There's been research done to show that the the public opinion regarding immigration, um, both documented and undocumented immigrants, um, the the opinion is beginning to change. What are some ways of even engaging this conversation? Thinking about our listeners, maybe they're going to go and speak with someone about this race and immigration. What are some ways to begin talking about this that that aren't so incendiary but are inviting? Because this is what I have read long felt book. from you. Yeah, read no. <laughs> I, I'll read say that book. you need to read the power uh, of proximity. Yeah, it's not all about immigration at all, but I do think it helps gently and prophetically, and you know, very directly as well. Really, kind of maneuver some of your own talking points. I think books do that; they give articulation for what you meant to say, and so I think that that's helpful. That's how I've used them, you know, all along. Michael, years ago, when the in 2007, when the comprehensive immigration bill package that we thought was going to get through with President Bush, and then his own party didn't stand with him in Congress, we had over 80 percent of you know support from the American people. The Dream Act, even three out of four Trump supporters, support a passage to citizenship for Dreamers. The reality isn't that the polls are bad. The polls are good. You know, we should have had immigration a long time ago because I think people know it. The thing is, is that the sense of urgency to actually do anything is almost non-existent. And so if you're going to become more aware and you're going to lean in, first of all, don't give yourself parameters. Like, well, I'm going to do everything but not get political. Please don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) That's just so dumb. It's just, just it's just not, it's, it's selling yourself short to realize that systems can be un, un, upended. Injustice in immigration is based on racist systems. It didn't just accidentally happen. There's intentional things. You can see what was happening, what's happening today. You know, there's there's a lot of things with p- political mood that's embedded in racism, and I wish I had time to tell you all about it. You're just going to take my word for it or, or find me later and ask me. But, um, you know, injustice didn't just happen, and it, it actually, the laws were built that way. There were, there were th- reasons that laws were built that way. And injustice doesn't fix itself. Justice isn't something that we wish. 
is something that we do. Mm. And if we want to really see change for immigration, you know, for incarcerate any of the issues, then we actually have to literally undo it. Um, and that's what I would say is don't just be aware of it and don't even just get to know an immigrant, although it's, it's more like be a part of the, the, the change that we know needs to happen. And people like myself and you, um, you know, people who are privileged, um, I'm white, you know, there's, there's a role for us to play. And, and we're actually the hiccup. It's pretty much white evangelicals that are the hiccup. They're the reason we don't have it. If you look at the polls, they'll say, yeah, you know, cause, cause we're the ones that everyone's afraid of. And, and I think that that's what we really need to actively change. And mm. I'll just sort of end with this. Um, you know, we can hope for better things, and we should. Christians are supposed to be people of hope. But hope is not some wishful thinking that just happens. It's an actual determined choice to believe in something that you cannot see. And St. Augustine says that hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Anger at the th way things are and courage to ensure that they don't remain as mm. they are. And I think that would be my charge is as Christians of a shared hope, of a vision that we can we can see almost clearly, but we don't see in results, but we have because God has set eternity in our hearts, that we need to choose hope and we need to live by faith and recognize that hope doesn't just happen, but that it, it needs to be equipped with anger and courage so that we don't have these conversations and that we can be the people that we, we long for the church to be. Yes. Michelle, thank you. Thanks for being with us. Where, where Do you have an online presence? Sure. <laughs> I don't have a blog and I don't have a website and apparently that's what you're supposed to do, but I, don't, I just am tired. Um, I, I was going to say writing this book in my spare time has made me more tired. You know, I love Twitter and I'm pretty active on Twitter, so you can find me at my handle. It's M-C-F Warren. And then also you can find me at CCDA um, in the staff section if you want to reach out. Perfect. Maybe I'll get a blog. Right now I don't have time, but... but um, but definitely, I think I'm pretty easy to find. Social media is helpful. Right on. Well, thank you so much for being here on the Changing Faith podcast. Again, the name of Michelle's book is titled The Power of Proximity. Came out just a couple months ago, and I can't recommend reading that. Not Don't read it alone. Get some people, read it together, talk about it, and see how you feel invited and challenged into these important conversations. So thank you again for being with us and as always much love